Good evening. Good afternoon. We are resuming our study of Bible translation issues, and today we're going to be in Revelation. So if you would take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 22, verse 19, we're actually going to, if we have the time, look at two different translation issues. And both of these issues have to do not really with translation as much as the text underlying the translation. So this is what you call a textual variant. And so what we'll do is we'll look at the reason why there are different variants, or at least as best as we can understand why these variants originated. And, and then we'll talk about the meaning of the verse itself, because I don't want to just look at the verse and not talk about the meaning of the verse. That would be sort of pointless. So um, we're going to be reading again in Revelation 22:19. I'll read the King James. Does anybody here have a quote-unquote, modern version. Um, like, what do you have? I have the Holman Christian Standard. Good, we're going to need that. And Jill, ESV. you got an ESV. Okay, and Scott's got the MEV. That should be enough. So let's read from the King James first. 22.19. 22.19. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So, Sandy, would you mind reading that in your version? Yes. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophetic book, God will take away his share of the tree of life in the holy city written in this book. Very good. And Jill, go ahead and read that in the ESV too. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. That's why I get Jehovah's Witnesses to look at that verse right there. Yeah, it's and it's a good verse for that very reason. Like you just said, Steve, there are a lot of cults that do try to add and take away. Uh, Scott, do you have the MEV pulled up? Yeah. Okay, go ahead and read that. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and out of the things which are written in this book. So we just read... Four different versions there. Can anybody tell me what's different? Like the essential difference between the KJV and the MEV on one hand and the ESV and the Holman Christian Standard on the other. The tree in the book. The tree in the book. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's the variant right there. Okay, so in Greek, the word for book here is Biblu and the word for tree is Tzulu. Okay, so when you look at these, Greek words next to each other. And in the original earliest manuscripts, they wrote everything in all caps. So all the letters were capitalized. So when you look at these side by side, they are pretty similar to one another. And so that would probably explain why there's a difference in the manuscript tradition. So this probably wasn't somebody who went in and intentionally changed something. There were people who even in the first century maliciously were trying to change the word of God. Paul warned about this. People, you know, writing things in his name. And of course, in the second century, we had people who were writing gospels. And so there were people who were trying to twist the words of God, not just in interpretative ways, but they were also changing what was being written. And so that's maybe something you can use to explain some variants. But here, because they're so similar to each other, and a lot of people would argue the meaning isn't affected. Because of that, it, it seems reasonable that somebody, when they were copying a manuscript, simply missed the word. 
Okay, they they saw Tree of Life from earlier in this chapter, and they put Tree of Life in instead of Book of Life. So I'm arguing that Book of Life is the correct variant, mm. and I'm going to explain why in just a minute. But that's the difference right there. Now, there are three main manuscript traditions that you need to be aware of anytime you're looking at something like this. And in a lot of Bibles, they'll have footnotes at the bottom that kind of explain it. So there is the critical text manuscript tradition. And that's not really a manuscript tradition as much as a modern endeavor based on some manuscripts that go back to Alexandria. Alexandria is a city in Egypt. And so there are some very old manuscripts that were made there. And from that tradition, many copies were made. They're still in the minority. So they're not the majority of copies, but these copies are very old but they also disagree among themselves a lot. So that's another thing. So we even speak of the word Alexandrian that might imply that they agree generally with one another, but there are lots of disagreements. Uh, while on the other hand, the majority text, the majority text, we have agreement among a large body of manuscripts, thousands of manuscripts. And they're, they're saying the same things. There's lots of agreement there. Every now and then there'll be a variant, but these minority manuscripts from Alexandria disagree a lot, but because they're very old and perhaps one might even say the oldest manuscripts that we have, many people say older is better. And they automatically jump to saying, okay, well, whenever we are creating a modern edition of the Greek text, we're going to give precedent to these old manuscripts. So the critical text is more or less based on the Alexandrian manuscript family. Now, again, that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. They have other criteria for determining what they think is the best manuscript, but because the Alexandrian ones tend to be the oldest, scholars place a lot of weight in favor of that tradition. Uh, there's the majority text, which honestly isn't very popular nowadays. Mm. Uh, in fact, I don't know of any popular translation in English that's based on the majority text as it's found in the modern editions of it. There are two main modern editions of the majority text. Now, the majority text, I have to explain a little bit about it. It's kind of a misnomer because the majority text doesn't actually exist. So in theory, it is an edition of the Greek Bible that you could pick up and you could read hmm. that is based on the majority of Greek manuscripts. Now, this work ultimately goes back to a guy in the late 1800s named Hermann von Sodden. And he collated, he brought together around 8% of manuscripts. Hmm. Now, there are well over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. So 8% of 5,000 is not the majority. Mm -hmm. But his argument was that this portion that he had, this set of manuscripts, represented the majority. So an actual majority text hasn't been created, and it really would be impossible to do so because... Has anybody in the world gathered all the manuscripts yeah, together? Yeah. I mean, has anybody in the world been able to say at any given time, we have all the manuscripts out there? Mm. Well, there's still manuscripts being discovered. So the majority text isn't something that you can create with any certainty. It's, it's probabilistic. We probably have the majority. And the majority itself probably gives us the best text. But again, it's all probability there. But when it comes to this, the majority text has tree of life. The majority text has tree of life. And 
the Alexandrian text has Tree of Life. Okay. So that re- that leaves one last manuscript tradition, and that is the Textus Receptus. Now, on this, the Textus Receptus is in agreement. So you have a number of different editions of the Textus Receptus, and they built upon each other until the final version was used to create the King James Bible. There's Erasmus, Stephanus, or sometimes just known as Stevens, and then you have Beza. Okay, so those three guys, they worked on the Textus Receptus tradition. These were the manuscripts that were accepted by the church at the time. So the people who were using the Greek Bible, who had any knowledge of Greek, this is considered to them the received text. It's what they put together and they brought to the printing press. It's what all the earliest English translations were built on, based on. And uh, it's what has been, for the most part, since the late 1800s rejected. So the received text has become popular because of the KJV. So most people, if they were reading this verse or they had this verse quoted, Mm -hmm. it's going to be more familiar for them to hear God shall take away his part out of the book of life. Most people are going to anticipate that Mm -hmm. just because of the popularity of the King James. But again, like I said, the majority text of Herman von Sodden, the critical text don't have book of life. They have tree of life. Now, would it affect the meaning very much? Some people argue yes. Some people argue no. So there are some interpreters that would say it's possible that the tree of life refers to some special reward that's given to overcoming believers. So in the free grace theology movement, some people hold that view that the tree of life is not something that everybody has access to. It's only given to the overcoming believers. I don't agree with that exactly. And when we get to Revelation, we're going to talk about the different rewards that are promised to overcomers. I do think that there is a special access to the tree of life granted to overcomers. Mm -hmm. It mentions the nations eating of the leaves, right? but it mentions partaking of the fruit as a special reward. So it Mm. seems like all believers have access to it, but there seems to be a difference between how an overcoming believer would experience the tree of life and how a carnal believer Hmm. would experience it. So that's something we'll get into later. But some people would make a big deal about tree of life here and say that, you know, this is more talking about rewards than anything else. However, I disagree. I think that book of life is correct. And when it talks about God taking away his part out of the book of life, I think the book of the life, book of the life, (laughs) book of life is a reference to the Lamb's book of life. Right. And we're going to look at some references in just a moment about that. And that if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, then you have eternal life. So this is about salvation. I think that. I don't think it's about eternal rewards. And uh, I think that a lot of people misinterpret this because they don't read the verse clearly. So let me read it again. This particular phrase, God shall take away his part. Now, it doesn't say his name. Yeah. It says his part. And in in Greek, the word is portion. Okay, Mm -hmm. part, portion. So... I have a note here in my study Bible, which I think explains it well. It says, there is surely room in the book of life for every soul ever born, but those who refuse to, who refuse to take the eternal life that God offers in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, they will not find their names written there. So the idea, according to that interpretation, which I agree with, is that because of what Jesus did on the cross for every person, because he died for the sins of the world, not just for Christians, not just for those who believe, but everybody has that option. Whosoever will can take of the water of life freely. Because of that, there is a portion set aside for every individual. So no one would come to God 
for the bread of life, for the water of life, and God say, well, we don't have enough for you. There was only enough purchased for the elect, as some believe. Mm. So God has a portion for everybody. It's just a matter of whether or not you accept that portion through faith in Jesus Christ. So when it says that God will take away his part, what it's saying is if somebody rejects the message that's in this book, and Revelation sums up a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. In fact, let's read verse number 17. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that hear it say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So this is obviously God extending an invitation. And at the end, whenever God brings about this judgment that is described in the book of Revelation, the people who rejected this book of prophecy, in particular Revelation, but really I think since this is the last book, it would extend to other books, Hmm. all the books of the Bible. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that we find this verse about not adding, uh, not taking away, and it's found here at the last chapter, the last book of the Bible. Yeah, the very last. Yeah, very last. So it's like God's warning people not to mess with the Bible. Revelation is the last bit. Like before, you know, God finishes writing his book, Revelation has to be written. It's written. And God's saying at the very end, don't add to it, don't take away from it. But people who, of course, reject the book of this prophecy, Revelation, the people who reject the Bible, and especially the gospel message, those people will find that when they stand before God one day, there was a portion set aside for them. They will discover that they were wrong, that eternal life wasn't a joke, that Jesus did shed his blood for them, but that portion will be taken away from them. They might want to say, but wait, it was for me, wasn't it? You died for me. And Jesus will say, it's too late. And that portion that Mm. was intended for them, that was theirs by what Jesus did on the cross for them, it will be taken away from them. So this is not talking about Christians having their name put in and their name removed. Right. This is talking about someone never being put in the book because they didn't believe in Jesus. Now, to sort of cement that idea before we talk a little bit more about the textual stuff, um, somebody read for me Revelation 13.8, and somebody else read for me Revelation 17.8. So 13.8 and 17.8. So whoever wants to get 13.8, speak now, forever hold your peace. (laughs) All right, thank you, Sandy. Read that for us. Into the microphone. Yeah, I'm leaning this way. <laughs> um, thirteen eight. All those who live on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. Very good. In the King James, I want to read this because I think in this case the Holman Christian Standard Version is a little bit more clear than in the King James. I wouldn't say the King James is wrong because it does follow the Greek very literally here. But to an English reader, the Holman Christian Standard Version makes a lot more sense. Uh, But it says in the King James, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, talking about the Antichrist, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, because, because all of that is just kind of run together, a lot of people would interpret this verse to mean that the Lamb, Jesus, was slain from the foundation of the world. Have y'all ever heard that said before? Mm. 
And so a lot of people would say it's referring to the plan of God to have Jesus slain. So in God's eyes and his decree, it was as good as done. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. A lot of people interpret it that way. But in the Holman Christian Standard Version, it's saying that the foundation of the world has to do with when the names were written in the book of life or not written in the book of life. Now, this bothers some people a little bit because they think that it verges on Calvinism. It doesn't. But before I explain why it doesn't, I want to read uh, from 17a. Does somebody already have that? I've got it. If you Go want ahead and read that, Matt. All right. <clears throat> the beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Good. So while verse 8 of chapter 13 may be a little ambiguous, is it talking about Christ being slain from the foundation of the world or the names being written from the foundation of the world? It's not ambiguous in chapter 17, verse 8. In chapter 17, verse 8, it very clearly states whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So God, from the foundation of the world, at creation, or right before, he writes in the book the names who are saved, who, who will be saved. Now, this goes right along with what is taught in the book of Romans chapter 8, mm. which I'll read for you. And this, this can't be denied. This is one of those things where people get uncomfortable about it, but election is taught in Scripture. However, the way Calvinists define election, I believe, is incorrect. And Revelation... Um, or sorry, Romans clears it up for us. So Romans 8, verse 29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called them, he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So it's very clear there that the people that were foreknown were called, justified, and they will one day be glorified. And that's going to happen at the rapture of the church. So the key word here is foreknow. Right. Okay, so it, it's not redundant. Calvinists would, would have a redundant interpretation here. They would say foreknow means determined beforehand. Right. So you would have God saying, for whom he did determine beforehand, he did predetermine. Yeah. So you, you have a repetitive statement there, which doesn't make any sense. Right. So foreknow, what does it mean? It means foreknow. Yeah. So God foreknew those who would what? Take of that portion that he would provide. Mm -hmm. He foreknew their sin. He had a plan to send his son, Jesus. All this, of course, happens in the mind of God in the eternal present. Okay. God mm -hmm. isn't like playing things out step by step by step like we do. Okay. Right. This happens all at once because he's a timeless God. But from our perspective, there's a logical order here. And the logical order is sin will happen. Jesus will take care of that sin. And there will be people who respond to that message in faith. Those people, I determine beforehand, now, from eternity, I determine that they will have eternal life. Why? Because they will be the ones to receive eternal life. Now, of course, this doesn't take away the sovereignty of God, because the only reason we are able to take of eternal life is because it is provided for us. And the only reason we're able to have it at all is because Jesus died on the cross. He did all the work himself, perfectly sufficient for us. 
So this isn't saying that we can earn our salvation or that man seeks after God because can anybody believe in Jesus apart from the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Of course not. You have to be convicted. But can that conviction be resisted? According to Scripture, yes. And so I think that the proper understanding of election is that God did know who was going to be saved. Those people have already been written in the book. And that wasn't contrary to our free choice because God knew he would enable that choice in the future. And he knew that we would place that faith in his son. So very confusing nonetheless. Yeah. And, and I, I don't deny yeah. that when it comes to foreknowledge in general, it's confusing. Is right. it not? I mean, we wonder well, it isn't, like, it isn't right. Cause it just to get yourself in that headspace, it's like, okay, so he already knew that I was going to do this. He didn't, make me do this, but he knew I would do it. And therefore, yes. So you know is I mean? it, is it certain No. that because God wrote my name in there that I would yeah. believe? Yes, it's certain yes. because God's never wrong. Right. Okay. But why does God know? Okay. Because he's already here and he's already well, there. In the and, future. and so then we could get into different yes. views of foreknowledge and that's really trippy too. Right. And there are lots of different philosophical <laughs> implications yes. there. But the point is God knows beforehand because he's all knowing because he's all knowing it's it, it's simple foreknowledge we don't have to really explain it no. and and i can remember that when i was in college uh, i had a professor who said the scriptures teach simple foreknowledge he said foreknowledge should not be explained away as calvinists often do they explain it as in god predetermines everything mm -hmm. and so he knows everything so if god plans it all out then of course he can know everything because sure. he planned it all out simple foreknowledge says God knows what's going to happen without taking away human freedom. Right. Now, there are certain things that he does and he doesn't leave it up to us. Okay. So we see miracles. We see God sustaining creation. Mm. We have no choice in that. We had no choice in, you know, salvation. Jesus accomplished that for us. Okay. So we don't seek after God. The Holy Spirit seeks after us. There are, so are a lot of things where God determines it and it's not something we do. Right. Uh, but when it comes to receiving the gift of salvation, God does give us that ability and he does give us a responsibility to believe. So I would say that the, the Arminian view here, uh, or the Wesleyan view is the correct one. Uh, Charles Wesley, he was a firm believer in predestination, mm -hmm. but he didn't define predestination the same as his Calvinist brethren would. Right. He would say that God foreknows faith, the faith of the people who are going to be saved. He foreknows their faith. And so because he foreknows they will believe, he takes into consideration that choice that will take place one day, and he sets aside for them eternal life. So mm -hmm. he does it in light of their decision. Even right. if that decision hasn't happened yet, it's still their decision. Right. While Calvinism would say, no, it has nothing to do with their decision. It has to do everything with God's decision. And you can't resist God. And, all and, that, and right? so when I read these verses, I, I used to be very uncomfortable with it because often in my household, it was like Calvinism and predestination were synonymous and we need to stop thinking mm. that way. We cannot think that Calvinism and predestination are synonymous. They don't have a monopoly on it. Okay. Right. Uh, long before Calvin and even long before Augustine uh, introduced this idea that God predetermines our actions, the early church was pretty much together on the fact that God knows future free choices. He knows that people are going to make future decisions of their own free will, whether that decision is to receive life or to refuse life. Right. And so we have 
the consensus of the early church. That in and of itself doesn't prove anything because the word of God's our authority. But we have that along with the statements of scripture like we just read in Revelation 22, whosoever will take of the water of life freely. So it is whosoever, anybody, and it's something they can freely accept or freely reject. And so whenever we're coming up with a view of election, we have to take into consideration that. We have to be consistent. We can't just throw out these references to freedom. So this view of election takes into consideration God's foreknowledge, um, his omnipotence, you know, his omniscience, you know, all of that. But it also takes into context the free choices that Scripture teaches that we do have. So you would you would have to reject a lot of texts to believe in Calvinism, or you would have to redefine them, reinterpret Absolutely. them, uh, especially when it comes to the universality of what Jesus has done to save people. Like he died for everybody, right? How many right. verses? Hopefully, y'all know some verses that teach that he died for all men. He says that a lot in his word. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you would have to redefine all there. And so there's yeah. a lot, a lot of redefining and a lot of reinterpretation involved, but anyways, so that's what the verse means. This, this is not teaching loss of salvation and it, it's not teaching predestination in a Calvinistic sense either. So now that we've established that we know what it means what evidence do we have for the KJV's reading? Well, besides a handful of Greek manuscripts, so unlike the one we looked at a couple weeks back, uh, Revelation 16, 5, I think is what it was. Mm. Um, yeah. Unlike that one, we do have Greek support for this, okay? So there's a handful of manuscripts that that have this in Greek. Uh, be, besides that, we have a ton of Latin manuscripts, okay? So this is something that is very common in the Latin stream, and it goes back to the 6th century. Okay, so that's the 500s. So that's pretty early as far as manuscripts sure. are concerned. So we know this is not something that was developed later on. We know it's not something that some scribe just threw in there. It's been around for hundreds of years. Right. And back in the 6th century, whenever they had the Latin manuscript, that was based on a Greek manuscript. So we know Greek manuscripts included Book of Life, even if they're not in the majority today. We know that they're very old, right. okay? So we, we have that antiquity going for it. But as far as evidence, I would say uh, there are two things. First, there's the internal evidence to support it, as I'll show. And then there is really the, your methodology. It's going to determine how you would even assess evidence. Mm. If you're a person who believes in the majority text, you're going to say, it's not in the majority, therefore we don't support it. Mm. If you're of the critical text mindset, you would say it's not in the majority and it's not in the manuscripts that we consider the best because they're the oldest. So Mm. we reject it. So your methodology will really determine on how you even assess this evidence, whether it has any weight or not. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, the the internal evidence, it makes perfect sense to have book here instead of tree. Again, it says in verse 19, if any man shall take away from the words of this, what? Book. Book. Of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. So there is a symmetry there that is lost if you include tree of life instead of book of life. So there's an irony here. God's saying if you mess around with his book, if you try to remove from it, um, if you try to twist it, corrupt it, because of course you don't believe it. If you do that in unbelief to God's book, God will do something 
when it comes to your portion for his book. Right. <clears throat> so if you mess with God's book, then he's also going to make some changes to his book in the sense that you previously had a portion, but you will lose that portion. You will lose that eternal life. Not as in you had it first, you were saved and then it was taken from you, but you were, you were, uh, you were kept from experiencing it in the first place. If that makes any sense. Okay. Mm -hmm. I hope that you're following me right there. Um, so I think that we have to understand the difference between potential versus actual. And, um, I think it's second Peter. I wish I had this reference. I don't have it off the top of my head and I don't have it in my notes, but it's just coming to mind. But it talks about how Peter in his letter said that these people, these false prophets, they denied the Lord that bought them. Mm. Now, if you read the context, it's very clear that these people were not saved. Okay. It talks about eternal condemnation. So these people are not saved. So when it says he bought them, does that mean he bought them in the sense that they were saved? They were believers. No. When it says he bought them, it means that he paid a ransom for them. Mm -hmm. And that proves that Jesus died on the cross, not just for people who believe, everyone, but also people who don't believe. Yep. So the people who say, I deny that Jesus is the Christ, I don't believe in the Bible, they're denying the Lord that bought them, even if they don't recognize it. <laughs> so they have a portion in God's book before they even hear about the gospel, before they even have an opportunity to reject it as they do, the portion's already there available for them. So I, I think that this is simply saying that if a person rejects the gospel to such an extent that they would be willing to actually tamper with it, mm -hmm. to undermine it by physically changing it, that illustrates their unbelief. And when they stand before God one day, having remained in that state of unbelief all throughout their life, they're going to regret it because they're going to realize that God had a book. This was true. What it said about the book of life was absolutely true. And they could have been in it, but they're not. It's going to be a, a terrible awakening for people. And that's why, of course, we as Christians need to be doing our best to share this good news right. with people that there is space for everybody, not just for the elect, okay, but for everybody. And I can walk up to anybody on the street and I can look them in the eye and say, Jesus died for you. He loves you and he wants you to know him personally. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a Calvinist can't say that. Uh, they they might be right. <laughs> they might be talking to a person who's elect. Yeah, maybe. But, but if they're not, then they're making a promise to this person that they can't keep. Okay, they they can't say that Jesus died for them and made it possible for them to be saved. Because what if he didn't? Now that really, guys, is where the rubber meets the road. This is where theology becomes such a critical thing. Where if it affects your gospel presentation, if you can't consistently share the gospel by going to every person hmm. and telling them Jesus loves them and he died for them. There's a flaw in your theology big time. But, uh, so we have the internal evidence. So the book of this prophecy parallels the book of life. Okay. So that makes sense as far as the text itself, the one that flows best, uh, that preserves the irony would be the Texas Receptus. We have the Latin stream of tradition. We have a handful of Greek manuscripts as well. So we do have some evidence, but this is where it really 
gets tricky. And uh, I'm going to try to explain this the best I can, but a lot of people nowadays, when they hear about these different methodologies, the critical text, the majority text, the Texas Receptus, um, I think they make some errors that aren't obvious up front. So the majority text view at first to me is the most convincing. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, I would say, well, it's pretty simple to say if it's in the majority, then probably that's the right one. Right. Okay. But you see, that's the key word right there. Probably. Probably. So if we were speaking from a rationalistic perspective, from a scientific perspective, you've got some weight in your argument there. I think probably even more so than the critical text view, which gives precedence to the Alexandrian manuscripts that are really old. Older Mm. means better. Uh, You know, I I think that you probably have an even better argument Mm. to say the majority of manuscripts. Okay. That's where you're going to find the, the word of God, the original, the authentic version. Um, and of course, there's a debate back and forth between those two. But what they have in common, even though they, they seem to disagree on so much in their debates, what they have in common is this. It's rationalism that governs their thinking. Yeah. So whenever they're doing these debates, they have in mind apologetics. The majority text position would say, we are going to appeal to the reason of the critics by saying that the majority makes more sense. And then you have the evangelicals who actually believe in inerrancy and, and they'll say, well, we're going to appeal to the critics by use of textual criticism. You know how we can actually determine which variants are the Mm. correct ones. And the earliest manuscripts are usually our guide in doing so. But in both cases, they will talk about the word of God as if it's a percentage. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but that makes me a little uneasy because I'll be in church and I'll hear preachers, you know, growing up. Your preachers talk about how every jot and tittle right. will be preserved and none of it will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away before it passes mm-hmm. away. And, and when I hear that to me, it's gotta be 100%. If it's not 100%, then it's not what he's talking about. And so that's where I think the Textus Receptus comes in again, not from a rationalistic perspective as much, but from a faith perspective. For a person who says, I want all of it, like all of it, you know, and, and not in my language, okay, right. in the original language, okay, but I want all of it. I want to be able to pick up a Greek Bible and be like, this is it, mm-hmm. okay? I want to pick up a Hebrew Bible and say, this is it, even if I may not be able to understand all of it, <laughs> right? But I want to be able to know it's there, that, that I have the Word of God available to me, um, that good translations are based on that 100% preserved Word of God. And the Texas Receptus position, even though it does leave a lot of room Mm -hmm. for faith, okay? And it may not be what some people want as much. They they may want more more probability. They want more rational argumentation, okay? I think you see some of that among Texas Receptus advocates, okay? But the main strength of their position is that they can say from a perspective of belief— belief in God's promise that God is going to preserve a hundred percent of his word in a way that can be seen. Okay. From a historical perspective. And so where is God's word at where his people are at? 
because God promised that the church would never be overcome by, by the gates of hell. And he promised that his word would edify his church, his priesthood of believers until he returned. And so where is the priesthood of believers? Well, before the advent of the printing press, you had handwritten copies, right? You know, that's what you're dealing with. So it's a little bit more chaotic, right? You don't have anything unified because they didn't have a way to mass publish anything. But whenever you have the advent of the printing press, whenever you have things like the Reformation happening at the same time as the invention of the printing press, and it's like the word of God is now exploding, okay? It's being put in the vernacular, whether it be Martin Luther's German, okay, or William Tyndall's English. It's going into languages. It's been hidden from the common people for such a long time, mm. you know, kept out of their hands by the Catholic Church. Now it's going into the hands of the people, the priesthood of the believer, not the priesthood of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Right. And all of this, as I mentioned last time we were discussing these issues, builds up to the worldwide mission movement. And when you see the version that they were using, they were using and they were in agreement on the text receptus. It was like, this is the received text. Like before the critical text came along or that even that methodology came along, the people who knew Greek, the scholars were like, this is the received text. This is what right. we use. All of us use it. It doesn't matter what language you're translating it into. Okay. Whether you're using a, you know, Scottish Gaelic Bible or French Bible, Spanish Bible, Dutch Bible, the received text is what it was all based on. And so to me, I have faith enough in the word of God and in Christianity in general to say that if this is true, if I presuppose, and after all, I do believe it, if I presuppose that Christianity is true, that from that faith perspective, I know where to look. I know where to look for the Word of God. Uh, it, it's not in any rationalistic methodology. It's in the hands of the people who are using it to spread the gospel. And when I look for that, you know, I see the Reformation. I see the worldwide mission movement. And I see the Bible that was used during that. And then I see, as the devil always loves to counterfeit everything that God does, you know, whether it be the satanic trinity in Revelation, the abomination in the temple, or counterfeit texts that are being produced and, and imposed upon the church in the late 1800s. I see a competition. And mm. I see, on the one hand, people who believe in the word of God, in inerrancy, in those essential doctrines of the faith. And then I see, on the other hand, people who are undermining those. And if I have to decide which text I'm going to trust, I'm going to go with the people who actually believe the Bible. Right. And so that's where it, it, it comes down uh, for me to your worldview. It really is a worldview. Um, and yes, I will unabashedly say that while I do believe that there is an abundance of evidence to confirm the Bible, um, in general, not just the text receptus, mm -hmm. but I do believe there's an abundance of evidence to confirm biblical doctrine. Ultimately, I believe that we as Christians should presuppose the Bible, that it's our ultimate authority, that we don't place anything over it. That for me, the Bible's the place that I go for every issue, whether it is something like 
creation versus evolution. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to presuppose the Bible. I, I believe that there is strong evidence, right? For creation. Absolutely. And I love studying it. But um, every time a creationist will throw out an argument, an evolutionist will have a counter argument. Yeah. Okay. And some of those counter arguments are uh, convincing on the surface because these people have degrees and they use jargon that I can't comprehend. Right. So I'm not going to trust in the scholarship as the arbiter of truth because then I'd be going back and forth, back and mm -hmm. forth, back and forth, back and forth because that's what they do. They're constantly going back and forth. I'm going to go with what the word of God says. And I'm thankful that I have that confirmation to shore up my faith when it comes, because I, I do believe there is that evidence. Uh, the same thing uh, could be said with issues like abortion. Uh, yeah. If someone says, why do you believe that abortion is wrong? I could engage in logical argumentations with them. And I do have really good points that can be made sure. just from a logical perspective. And I was teaching my students this yesterday. I, I said, ultimately, the Bible tells us the truth about it. And that's where we stand. Mm -hmm. If I didn't have any logical arguments, I would still be right in saying, God said it, that settles it. But because God is a God of logic, I do believe that there's lots of confirmation from other areas as well, whether it be from science, you know, telling us what it does about conception. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, the argument based on the SLED acronym. I don't know if you ever heard of that. Mm -hmm. S-L-E-D. Size, level of development, environment, independence. Yeah. It's a really good argument against abortion because they'll say, you know, the baby's, you know, less developed, smaller in the womb, dependent upon the mother. And they use those arguments to say that the baby isn't alive. The baby isn't a person. Well, if we applied that to us, okay, if I go into another room, different environment, it doesn't change my humanity. If uh, I had to take medication and I depended on that for survival, that wouldn't change my humanity. Uh, my two-year-old, Jamie. He's less developed than I am, but I'm no more human than he is. And so, again, logic, I think, does a great job in showing that, look, when the Bible says life begins at conception, we have good reasons for believing that. Absolutely. But again, going back to the main point, uh, we have to, as Christians, ask ourselves, what is the authority? Is it human reason or is it the written word of God? Mm -hmm. And for me, it's the written word of God. And so whenever I'm trying to determine, okay, like, which words are God's words when we're talking about the text? To me, I'm going to come at it from a faith perspective that believes that God is not distant and remote, but he's involved in preserving his church. He's involved in preserving his word. He's involved in propagating the gospel through his priesthood of believers. Right. And as I operate on those principles, I'm led to believe that the text receptus it's been in the hands of the church more than all these other texts. Mm. And it's been used in a bigger way than all these other texts. And so as far as a legacy is concerned, there's a holy legacy for that. So anyways, that is the methodology and it always comes back to that. Um, but like I said, I think that even just from an internal evidence perspective, it makes most sense to go with book of life. All right, we're going to look at one more today and then we're going to wrap it up. Go to Revelation 22, verse 14. Same chapter. You don't have to go very far. Somebody read that for me in either the ESV or the Holman Christian Standard. Uh, I got it. Okay, 22, 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Good. All right. 
Scott, will you read the NED? Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Good. All right, so where's the variant? It's like that game where's Waldo? Where's the variant? Wash their robes. Wash their robes is the ESV. And in the KJV and the MEV, it's do his commandments. So that's different. It's Mm. pretty different. So it's a big difference. It is actually a big difference. So um, the reason why I think this happened again is because if you were to look at the Greek statements capitalized in their manuscripts as they were originally written, they are similar to each other (coughs) in the way they look. So if you're copying by hand, everything was copied by hand back then, okay? In the uh, manuscripts that read wash their robes, it's hoi plunantes tastolas auton. And in the Texas Receptus, and in the majority text here, it's also the majority text, has do his commandments, and that is hoi poiuntes tasentolas autu. So when you compare them next to each other written out, they're very close. Okay. They look a lot alike. And so again, when you're copying out these manuscripts, it's easy to make a mistake. Um, you know, human memory isn't perfect. You know, our senses aren't always trustworthy. And so sometimes I think honest mistakes like that could happen. So, uh, in this case, we have both the text receptus and the majority text supporting do his commandments as opposed to wash their robes. So I've found that a lot of people will automatically go for wash their robes. Now, why do you think they would do that? It, because what that implies, the washing of your robes, the fact that you're wearing the robes that Jesus gives you by, with the blood of the lamb, washing your robes like that. That's my thought anyway. Absolutely. So in that, in that sense, according to that view, and you're describing exactly what most of them would say, they'd say, well, that is a gift. Your robes are washed because Jesus has washed you by his blood. Mm-hmm. When does that happen? Well, when you believe in him, but do his commandments. Well, look at that again. It says, blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. So they would say, that sounds like works to me. And so I've heard many people argue against the majority text and the text receptus here on that basis. However, I'm going to share with you a verse that I think proves that there's really no contradiction between this verse and Ephesians 2.8, which many of you probably already know, and that is, we're saved by grace through faith and not of works. So there's no contradiction between what we have in Revelation 22 and what we have in Ephesians 2.8. Now, some people would agree with me that far, but this is how they resolve the contradiction. They'd say, if you're really saved, you're going to do his commandments. And I think that is not the correct way to resolve the contradiction. I think that that belief contradicts the testimony of the New Testament. I think that the Bible does not teach in the New Testament that being saved automatically results in you consistently and faithfully doing his commandments. Um, a lot of people think that, ah, you can stumble a little bit, you know, you could stumble every now and then you can, you can commit the minor sins, but you're never going to fall on your face if you're a true believer. Mm. And I don't believe that's what the new Testament Mm -hmm. teaches. I think it does talk about carnal believers. And I think it does talk a lot about Christians falling away 
literally falling on their face. So to show you that there's no contradiction, look with me, and this is where we'll wrap it up at 2 Thessalonians 1.5. 2 Thessalonians 1.5. By the way, you know what we're doing whenever we compare Scripture with Scripture like this? I'm leaving the book of Revelation. I'm going to 2 Thessalonians, written by a completely different author. This is known as the analogy of the faith, or analogy of faith. And it was a Reformation principle that the Word of God is perfect. God used many people to write His Word, but mm -hmm. He's the ultimate author. So even though these are two different human authors, there will be no contradiction between right. the two because God is the one inspiring it. In many commentaries today, the scholarship will treat Paul and John as if they disagree with yeah, each other. Yeah, yeah. And I found that even some older commentaries, like, oh, yeah. this contradicts what John says here. They've actually said that Paul doesn't teach a millennium and that he contradicts uh, what John says in Revelation 20. And I'm like, what? Yeah, that make but, sense. But yeah. we, again, we presuppose this is God's word, his inerrant word. All these authors are being led by the same Holy Spirit. But in 2 Thessalonians 1.5, uh, we actually need to back up a little bit. Uh, we'll Same. look at verse three. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Now, I want you to go a little bit further down to verse 11, and it says, Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. So in verse 5, it seems that Paul is saying that by enduring through tribulation, they are being accounted worthy in the eyes of God of their calling, worthy of the kingdom that they've already been destined to. Now, this is one of those things that I think is um, uncomfortable to think about for a lot of Christians, but there are a lot of places in the New Testament where Paul says, John says, be righteous. Mm. Now, of course, there is John, Paul, or whoever author we're talking George about. Ringo? What's that? Nothing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, not those. <laughs> but whenever... They say this, are they saying be righteous as in be perfect, be sinless, don't sin, be absolutely righteous? Or are they saying to the best of your ability in this fallen world, live a holy life? Right. That's what they're talking about. All right. So here when it says that Christians are counted worthy of the kingdom by their works, by their enduring through persecution... Is it saying that they're absolutely accounted worthy of the kingdom because of their works? No. Like they actually deserve the kingdom because they've worked for it. No. No. What it's saying is their actions are consistent with the blessings they're going to receive one right. day. So God will be able to look upon these people who endured persecution and say, you were worthy of it. Now, of course, even for him to say that, it's a grace statement. Because in truth, in an absolute sense, we're not worthy of it. Right. But because these Christians, they consistently endured in their faith in the face of persecution, yes. 
God is proud of that, yeah. and he's able to use that term worthy and apply it to them and say, when you enter the kingdom, it's like you earned your supper. Right. I can remember my parents and my grandparents saying that growing up. Man, you worked hard today. You really earned that supper. Now, of course, would I have gotten my supper even if I wouldn't Absolutely. have been good? Absolutely, I would have gotten my supper. But because I worked hard, they said I was worthy of it. Yeah. It's, it's like we're not perfect. We're being perfected. That, that whole thing of, yeah, you may be, you know, you may be righteous, but that doesn't mean that you're perfect. Yes. Like Christ, right? So you're constantly being perfected. You're constantly building upon your faith and mm-hmm. growing in your faith. Um, yes. And you're, you're going to fall. Yeah. And, and see, that's Each why, that's why <laughs> I think it's terminology is helpful here. There's positional righteousness right. and there's practical righteousness. Positional righteousness is something you have even when you sin. Yeah. Like if I, if I lose my temper and I yell at my wife for no good reason, okay. Or right. yell at my kids. Okay. In that moment, am I righteous? No. Okay. Not in a practical sense. Right. But in position, as far as my salvation is concerned, am I still righteous in the eyes of God? Am I still justified? Absolutely. Okay, so in an absolute sense, I'm righteous no matter what. That's why at any given time if I die, where am I going? I'm going to heaven Mm -hmm. because I've been washed. Okay, I've been forgiven. I've been sanctified and justified. Uh, But practical righteousness is something God expects of all of his children. Now, why does he expect that of you? Because that's what you are, really. Mm. Because you've been given a new nature, right. you're a new creation. You know, in your spirit, you're clean. Yeah. Yeah, you still struggle with the flesh. So rule over it. Mm-hmm. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. That's who you really are. So act that way. You've been redeemed from sin, and now you're holy in the eyes of God. So don't sin. Act holy. Right. And these people in Revelation 22, when it says, "Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life." and they enter in through the gates into the city, is this saying that if, if there are Christians who don't do his commandments, okay, if they're carnal, like the Corinthians were, okay, mm. Paul didn't say, you're doing God's commandments, you're doing great, I don't have anything to tell you. Mm. No, he had a lot of things to say about them, a lot of critiques to give them, but will those people still enter the city gates? Will they still have right to the tree of life? Yes. Why? Because of grace. And this brings us back to that really important passage in 1 Corinthians 3. If you build upon your foundation, hay, wood, and stubble, and it all burns up, what do you still have? You still have the foundation. Mm. You still have the foundation. But wouldn't it be better to build upon that foundation something that can last? And if you do that, then the Lord will say, you are worthy. Mm -hmm. Not in an absolute sense, because when we receive those crowns, we know full well that we would not even be in a position to earn a reward if we weren't redeemed first. Mm-hmm. It's like you can't run a race, okay, if you don't even have your feet on the ground. All right? God puts our feet on the ground and then says, run the race. That, that ground is under our feet no matter what, but what do we do once we have our feet put on the mm-hmm. ground? Some people run, some people sit down, and they pull up the grass, <laughs> and they get distracted from their calling. And so this verse, I don't think in any way contradicts salvation by grace through faith. I think it's simply saying that people who are honoring the Lord in their life and they're doing his commandments, they're being overcomers, that when they enter into the kingdom, God's going to say, you're worthy of this. Not absolutely, but they're worthy of it because they live the life thinking about it every day, renewing their minds. I mean, what is your goal? Mm. Like I'm running for heaven. 
I'm running for heaven. Now, I know that if I stop running for heaven, I'm still going to heaven. Right. Okay? But won't it be different entering heaven, running into it, keeping my eyes on it, or God having to turn me around, pick right. me up, and put me in it? Yeah. Which way would you rather enter heaven? I think we know the answer to that one. And so we have, in this case, the textual evidence is pretty much in favor of um, do his commandments. So we won't really go into that. But those are a couple different verses, guys, that are somewhat controversial. And hopefully they make more sense to you now. Do y'all have any questions? Everybody good? God bless you. Thank you for listening to us.